Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. The book of Isaiah was written during a time of uncertainty and difficulty for the children of Israel. Their rebellion against God opened them up to, really, in their eyes, an uncertain future. In the pages of this book, there's great rebuke. There is messages of judgment. But alongside the judgment, there is a thread of hope that weaves its way through the turmoil. And I trust it will be a blessing to us as we are once again in Isaiah chapter 40. They can grow to have a wingspan of over eight feet. They can fly up to 100 miles an hour when swooping in for their prey. They're incredible, incredibly territorial, defending their home against any invader. Their nests can grow up to 20 feet deep and over nine feet across. And they build their nests in some of the most inhospitable places, the top of mountains or the tallest of trees. They mate for life, and they do a great job of raising their young. And of all the birds of prey classified as raptors, the bald eagle stands as a testament to resiliency, to power, majesty, and success. And they carry a special place in the hearts of all Americans. In 1793, the Founding Fathers decided to select the bald eagle as our national symbol because they desired a symbol that represented the fledgling country well. And the bald eagle's attributes and account of survival, even in the face of extinction, have confirmed time and time again that it's been an appropriate choice. We love the bald eagle here in America. But the reality is that eagles have always incited awe and wonder in their observers. Scripture even references the victory, the power, and skill of eagles. And our text for the evening includes one of those references. Again, its inclusion comes at a time when God's people are not manifesting victory, power, and skill. And in actuality, this reference comes amid Isaiah's prophecy against God's people. Uh, see, the children of Israel had rebelled against God, as I mentioned. They had served false gods. They had walked away from serving the God who loved them, protected them, and gave them success in the promised land where they lived. Isaiah declares a time of chastening because of that rebellion. In fact, part of our text for the evening, verse 30, says, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, even the best of the best. Human skill and strength was to fail. And it's amid this message of chastening that God declares a glimmer of hope through his prophet. It would be the only way to manifest strength, power, and success during their current struggle. Isaiah makes it clear that it is possible to have that victory, to have that to manifest strength and power, to soar like an eagle, if you will. But it's only if his hearers follow his directions. And the reality is that people seek success, power, and victory from all the wrong places. The children of Israel were doing it, and beloved, so do we. They desired to soar like eagles, and I'm sure we do too, but instead, they were pecking around in the dirt like a chicken. And in our text for tonight, Isaiah declares the way to manifest that strength, 
that power and that victory in our life. And we probably all know Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. And we'll get there, but before we get there, we need to look at the verses around it. We need to get a full picture of how to soar like an eagle. And in order to do that, Isaiah very clearly makes things clear through something that we should know and something then what we should do. So let's pick up our text for the evening in verse 27. It begins with a question. And we need to understand, first off, to soar like an eagle, you must know our God. These people, the original audience, they knew of God, but their hearts were far from him. Isaiah 29, verse 13, makes that clear. They approached God, but they, their hearts were far away from God. And so when the going got tough, the bottom line was they didn't actually know their God. They knew of him, but they didn't actually know him. And then we find in verse 27 a question that really manifests who we are in difficulty. The temptation of each one of our hearts. And in difficulty, we often doubt who God is. Look at verse 27. He says, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest thou, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? See, in difficulty our heart tends to doubt. We start asking those fundamental questions. Where is God? And if he's there, why isn't he doing something about my, my plight? And he asks the question and reveals that we often doubt his sovereignty. That's the first thing that we doubt. Israel is saying, my way is hid from the Lord. In other words, they're saying, God must not see me. God must not understand my plight. I'm going through this difficulty and God just isn't there. Does God see me as I sit in the hospital, as I get that news from the doctor? As I see all of the, the hard work that I have, I have, I have invested just dwindle away, does God really understand what I'm going through? Does God see me? Well, beloved, he is the God who sees it all. And nothing is without his sight. I love Psalm 139 because it talks about all of the different places that we could go or we could be, and God is there through all of it. Psalm 139 is probably something that this original audience would have known. If I descend even into the utter the, the depths of the sea, thou art there. So does God see me? Does he know my situation? Maybe you say, I feel so alone. But God does see. God does understand. In fact, throughout scripture, we find that God has a, a name, and that name is El Roy. And that means the God who sees me. And so in a difficult situation and in a circumstance, they're even experiencing the chastening of God. Even in chastening, does God see you? Does God understand where you are? And I can confidently say yes. We'll talk about that here in a second. But in a, difficult, in a difficulty, the tendency of our heart is to doubt who our God is. We doubt that he is actually seeing, understanding, and is in control of our life. 
we'll see here in a second that, that Isaiah writes to, to set that thought straight. But we also need to see that in difficulty, we not only doubt his sovereignty, but we doubt his power. Maybe we say, okay, the Lord sees me. I know he sees me. We have passages. We have promises. I know he sees me. But then the question is, is he going to fix it? Is he going to do anything? And we, we may doubt, we may not doubt, excuse me, his sovereignty, but then we doubt his care. We doubt his ability to fix it. We doubt his power. And the verse continues on, my way is hid from the Lord and my judgment is passed over from my God. There were wrongs that were not being made right. It seemed like God was weak. And oftentimes, as we look through the annals of history, God shows himself seemingly as weak and then steps forward and shows his power. But in those moments when we think that he is showing himself or he's working from a position of weakness, he's in control of every aspect of it. He's never relinquished his power. He's never... Uh, not able to do something. They ask the question, is my deserved justice able to be recompensed? They look at their situation and it doesn't seem fair. And yes, God has communicated that justice to us. And sometimes you may look at your life and say, Lord, I, I, I haven't done anything to deserve this. In my mind, there seems like there's always the, the, the person who's doing wrong is always victorious, and the one who is doing what is right is always in a position of weakness. What's the deal? That's our heart cry. And we wonder, is God able? Maybe he sees, but can he do anything? Jeremiah 32, verse 7, at the end of the verse, he finishes with, there is nothing too hard for thee. And the overwhelming and resounding answer is not only is God sovereign and in control of everything, but he also cares, and he keeps score. And I don't want to uh, steal Pastor Craig's thunder, but if you were to go to the end of Revelation, if you go all the way to the end of the book, we know that God, that Jesus is coming back. And we know that he even says that he comes quickly and he's coming with his reward. He's going to make a judgment. He's going to make everything right. And so he's keeping score. He's, he is remembering justice. And so these two questions are questions that, are, that the Israelites are asking, but they're asking without knowledge. The situation is overshadowing their understanding of who God is. And they doubted who their God was. So in difficulty, we often doubt who God is. But then we find that in order to fix that, we must be reminded of our God. You see that in verse 28 and 29. And I love how this part starts off. In the midst of those questions, now we have Isaiah asking the questions. And verse 28 says, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. 
He says, don't you know? Have you forgotten? And he calls them back to remember who their God is. They needed to know who God was. They needed to be reminded. These were people that had, many of them had memorized the original first five books of the Bible. They knew who their God was up here. And, God, and, and Isaiah reminds them of these facts. He says, he starts off, and he says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. We need to see that God is everlasting. Sometimes when we look at our problems, the problems get so big that we wonder, is there anything to life outside of this issue? It's all-encompassing. It, it, it takes, it's almost like a vacuum. It's like a black hole that sucks everything into it. Is there anything to life outside this difficulty? And Isaiah begins by saying that we have an everlasting God. The problem you face cannot outlast God. He never had a beginning. He never had his, has an end. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So God is everlasting. What else is true? He continues, the everlasting God, now it says the Lord. And in my Bible, the Lord, L-O-R-D, is all in caps. And that means that he is the covenant-keeping Lord. Psalm 111, verse 5, he will ever be mindful of his covenant. So even having the name of our Lord, the Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, he's declaring, Isaiah is declaring who our God is. If he's made a promise to you, he will keep it. You can take that to the bank, so to speak. When we wonder if God has left us, we go back to those exceeding great and precious promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is with us. He's, covenant, he's, a, he's a covenant-keeping Lord. Not only that, he continues, he's the creator of the ends of the earth. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Again, I'm reading, as I read about who our God is, I'm also including psalms. These would be, these would be passages that the original audience would have and should have known. We must be reminded that our God is the one who created us. Now, sometimes we don't like that reality because if we are created by him, then we are accountable to him as our creator. And the, and the world and those who are unsaved will, will bristle at that and fight that. But for those of us who are his children, understanding that by his, the word of his mouth, all the heavens were made, oh, we can just bask in that glory for a long time, can't we? Just thinking by the word, by his own breath, all of these things came into existence. There's nothing too hard for us. You could do a study, and, and scientists have, where you could go and plumb, try to plumb the depths of even the human eyeball or even go to the bottom of the sea, and there are still places and things that we just don't understand. He is far above us, and he spoke it all into existence. He's the creator. He's made us. He's fashioned us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. 
And Isaiah calls them back to this understanding. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He is our creator. And then here's another wonderful thought. The creator, the ends of the earth, he fainteth not and neither is weary. He faints and is not weary. Have you ever been weary? Have you ever thought about fainting? (laughs) It's not an enjoyable experience. But God never does. God never learns anything. We're taking in information all the time and we're processing and we're, we're thinking about it and he doesn't do that. And then he's not tired either. I know for me, I love Sunday afternoons because I can take a nap. After the morning service, after preaching, teaching and all the different responsibilities, it's so nice just to lay on the couch and take a nap. But God doesn't need that. He doesn't need to do that. He's not faint. He's not weary. Have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night? Maybe you have a concern on your heart, a burden, something you don't know how to fix or you're not sure how to go about it. You're not sure how to navigate. We feel faint and we say often, Lord, I can't do this. I don't know what to do. God doesn't do any of that. He doesn't faint. He's not weary. Nothing he experiences or, or, or even sees, wearies him at all. It doesn't shock him. He knows it all. Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Can I say we can sleep because he doesn't sleep? We can be at rest because of who he is. In fact, he promises that I will give my children rest. So yes, I don't know what you're experiencing, but you can go through that experience and you can rest in the God who doesn't rest, who is active at all times. And I've sat back and thought, I wonder if when we get to heaven and we finally have our glorified bodies and minds, I wonder if God will ever reveal to us all the work he did behind the scenes in our life, perhaps while we were sleeping. While we were, if you will, unconscious to the world, and God is actively protecting, guiding, and providing. So he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. What else does he do? He gives power. Oh, there is no searching of his understanding. Excuse me, back in verse 28. There is no searching for his understanding. He knows everything. Psalm 139.2, thou understandest, understandest my thought afar off. He knows what you're going to think even before you think it. This is who our God is. He knows everything. And then from that, verse 29, not only does he know all of those things, but then he also gives. He giveth power to the faint. Where does the faint get their power? It's from God. And to them that have have no might... He increaseth strength. Have you ever been there? Has that ever been your testimony, verse 29? You got nothing. You have no resources left. You've come to the end of yourself. You've come to the end of your strength. You've come to the end of your wisdom. And you cry out to God. And he gives you power. He gives you wisdom. He increaseth strength. So where does this come from? It comes from God. 
And beloved, there are so many times we need to be reminded of that. In all of life, the temptation will be for us to listen to ourselves. We will make arguments. We will hedge at what is happening. We, will be un, we won't be at rest. We will become weary. But in those moments, we must preach to ourselves. We must not listen to ourselves. It's interesting, uh, as, I, as we were uh, looking at getting a puppy, one of the things that we uh, would do as we were looking for a puppy is we were looking for one particular uh, reality. And that was the reality that our dog, Sadie, she's 12 now, I believe. Uh, so she's been with us for a long time. But one of the things we looked for was, was she paying attention to us? There were a lot of other dogs that can kind of get and do what they wanted to do. But our dog, Sadie, was the one in the litter that consistently kept, I mean, all the puppies were sleeping and doing what they wanted, but this one dog kept coming back to us. That was one of the tests. But the other test was I wanted to see if our dog would give up. And you might say, what does that mean? Well, one of the things that I had learned when I was younger was if you wanted to see what type of puppy or dog you had, you could literally put your arms, your hands under their belly and under their chest, and you would just lift them up about this far off the ground. And in that moment, that puppy obviously is saying, what is the deal? And they would, it, they would struggle and they would struggle and they would struggle. The puppy that would give up and finally rest in your hands was the one that would be easier to train. And so there were a few things that, I, that Cheryl and I did to test to see if Sadie was going to pass the test. She did, and she's been with us for 12 years. She's a great dog. Um, she's getting older. She can move a little slower. But at the same time, I watched to see if she was going to give up to me. In the same way, we need to give up to God. We need to understand who he is. We must preach to ourselves, not listen to ourselves. We must, not, we must not fight. We must not argue with God. We heard a wonderful illustration this morning when the king of Israel blamed God for his problems and then didn't want to do what God had told him to do. And in that case, it brought great difficulty and even the youths, as we heard this morning, were fainting, falling. They had no strength. And beloved, if we listen to ourselves, we will fall into the trap of doubting our God's person and his nature. And can I say, doubting then leads to leaving our God. And in all of life, you should know these things. He loves you dearly. He's acquainted with every moment, every hurt, every stressor every failure, and even, yes, every success. He knows, but thankfully he also supplies what we need. He giveth strength. He is the source of power in your life. He's the source of fulfillment today. Without him, we will never make it. So, to soar like an eagle, you must know your God. And the question is, do you know him tonight? Do you need to be reminded of him? I've loved the, the, the song services both this morning and this evening because it just talked about, all the hymns talked about who our God is. This goes so much deeper, knowing God goes so much deeper than just a mere head knowledge. Oh, that's part of it. 
But have you experienced these things? Some of you have, and some of you could stand up here and give testimony for hours about how the Lord has worked. If you have, remember who he is. If you have not, you can know him, and you can trust him. You have to think about him. You have to read the word. You have to speak to him in prayer. You have to pursue him. And in one of these, one of these passages of scripture, one of these wonderful promises that he is, that he will be found if you search for him with all your heart. Know your God. That's the first step to soaring like an eagle. But that is not all. And now we get to the passage that probably you know. Let's look at verse 30 and verse 31. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. To soar like an eagle, you must wait for your God. Now, let's talk about that word waiting. Because isn't it our favorite word? Don't you just love waiting? I mean, it's, it's what we do, right? Well, whether it's the husband who waits for the wife to get ready, or whether it's the wife who waits for the husband to come in to dinner after she summons him, or whether we wait at the line in the grocery store or at the gas station, or even at the amusement park, we often wait. But in our waiting for these mundane things, I believe we have come to understand the waiting that is mentioned here incorrectly. This word wait is full of deep meaning, and there have been several translators who have utilized multiple words to describe this concept of waiting. Some have, have used it as trust. Others have used the word hope. But I, I appreciate the King James translators when they, say, when they, they put down waiting. The word wait is a good one. As long as we understand waiting as God intends us to understand it. See, in our understanding of waiting, we tend to sit back and we say, we are just kind of passive. We're waiting for our circumstance to go through. We're waiting for the transaction to go through. We're waiting for the person in front of us to get out of our way. We are simply kind of a cog in the wheel of life, and we just are sitting there twiddling our thumbs. That's kind of how we view waiting. But this is not the idea that is mentioned here. We need to understand that when we wait on the Lord, there's something so much more active involved. So waiting is a very active thing. In fact, the, the, the translation of this word wait has the idea, the Hebrew word has the idea of binding a rope. Now when I saw that, I was like, what in the world does that have to do with waiting? But think about those who make a rope. What do they do? They take the different components of a rope that are all separate, that are all, all disheveled, that are all spread everywhere, and they would take those components and they would bring them together and they would bind them and they would twist them. And there was an intentionality that, that was in that process. And as we think about waiting, what, I, what the translators, what the original language is trying to pass on, it's taking divergent thoughts and pursuits and it's binding them all together in an organized way so as to produce something that is useful. 
So as we think about waiting for our God, it's taking all of the different pursuits of life and it's bringing them all into one particular venue, one particular pursuit. And it's all about waiting for our God. It's active. We bind together our thoughts. We bind together our pursuits. It's leaning forward in anticipation. It's looking or lingering after something. The thought that kind of came to my mind is, have you ever watched a person in the airport when they're waiting for the airplane to disembark? Okay, so they're waiting. Just like everyone else, they're just waiting. But they're waiting with expectation. I love watching as uh, soldiers are reunited with their family. And they have signs. I mean, they're waiting for that person. And there's such anticipation, and they're lingering, and they're, they're watching, and they're looking around people, and people are in the way, and I've got to see that person when they come. Oftentimes, it almost overwhelms them in when they see their loved one, and they can't help but do what? Run to that person, throw their arms around them, and embrace That's the idea of waiting. It's an active thing. It's anticipating. It's lingering after. So, do you wait like this for our God? As you go through difficulty, are you waiting for God like this? Lingering after him. Binding all of your thoughts, all of your pursuits, and wrapping them up in him. This is the waiting that yields the soaring that we'll get to in a second. So waiting is active, but then waiting again is intentional. And these seem kind of similar, but what happens is when you are waiting in an active way, you are then intentional and you make certain choices. What does that mean? Well, we choose God intentionally. There may be two choices that you can have or you can make, but if you're waiting for God intentionally or actively, you're going to choose God. We choose to focus on him. We choose to trust him. We choose to invest our energies in him. And again, this is why the the idea of a rope is so uh, poignant. We might have other pursuits, but no, we bring them all so that we can bind them to our Savior. We bind them to our God. We choose to invest our energies in him. Beloved, I'm a little concerned that in the Christian culture of today, Christianity has gotten cheap. See, we want God, but we also want the nice house. We want God, but we also want the good health. We want God, but we also want the full bank account. We want God and our sports. We want God and our leisure. We want God and dot, 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 whatever it is. And our thought is, hey, why can't I have both? There's nothing wrong with a full bank account. There's nothing wrong with a nice house. Why can't I pursue both of these things? Why do I have to choose? In some cases, uh, there are times that uh, we even may try to make the choice easy for other people. But really, God is making it clear 
that the only way of fulfillment and joy is not in anything else but pursuing God above all else. I love playing sports, but there came a point when my family had to make a certain choice. And by God's grace, God helped us to make a choice that helped us to pursue God, helped us to pursue being in church, because that's where the people of God are. And sometimes you may have to make that choice. And God might bring you to that crossroads to say, what are you willing to give up so that I am big in your life? Are you pursuing God above everything else? Can I say, waiting on God most likely will cost you. You won't be able to wait on other things. Are you willing to pay for that? Or are you content to try to walk the fence of pursuing and waiting on your culture or pursuing and waiting on God? If that is you, you've already made your choice. And can I say you're not waiting on God, you're waiting on your own desires. Beloved, knowing our God makes waiting for God not only possible, but can I say bearable? nay, even enjoyable. What happens to those who wait on the Lord? They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Have you ever watched a person navigate a difficulty and you say, how in the world can they do that? They can do that if they are waiting on the Lord. Why? Because he's the source of their strength. They're able to run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Beloved, wait actively. Wait intentionally for him. Linger for him. Bring all your thoughts into captivity. So to wrap this up, eagles are majestic birds. But here's the interesting thing about them. They don't hatch being able to soar. They must learn. And what's interesting is that everything in their life leading up to that moment of flight is engineered to help those egrets, those little baby birds, learn how to eventually soar to great heights. This fascinating process begins intentionally even before the egret egg is even laid. The parents of the egret engineer their nest with soaring in mind. First, the nest is located at the highest altitude possible. This keeps it free from predators, but it also gives the egret time to exercise his wings once those flying lessons begin. Second, the nest is made in layers. At its base, it's a, it's a layer of sharp items that is laid in. It could be thorns. It could be sharp glass. It could be sharp sticks. But it's sharp nonetheless. After that base layer, the eagle, then, eagle parents then finish off the nest with the soft part. A soft layer of hay or feathers. And this design is intentional because the eggs and the baby, at first, they need a soft, warm place to hatch and begin to grow. But after a predetermined period of growth, the eagle parents start to do something. They begin to place food just outside the nest or on the ridge of the nest. And that's intentional. It's to force the baby eagle to move around and even get to the edge 
and, and even be able to look over the edge and get used to the height. And what they use is, is hunger as that motivator. And then the day finally comes when the egret needs to leave the nest. They need to learn how to fly. And this begins kind of an interesting process where you might think that the eagle parents are a little bit harsh. But what the eagle parents begin to do is they start stirring up the nest. They start kicking out all the soft bits, and then it exposes all of the sharp bits underneath. And the previously comfortable home becomes painful and, yes, uncomfortable. And it pushes the egret to move to the edge of the nest. After all, who likes to be poked and prodded? And after this, then, the eagle parents begin to flap their wings. And they even shove the egret to the edge and at times over the edge of the nest. You might say, wow, that sounds terrible. But it's all intentional. And it's all under the watchful eye of that mom and dad. And as the egret falls, it begins to frantically thrash around as it tumbles to the earth. Through the whole process, though, the eagle parents are watching. They're protecting its young. In fact, before an egret would hit the ground, before the egret slams into the ground and hurts itself, the eagle parent swoops down and catches the eagle on its back and then takes it back up to the heights. Now, that sounds amazing, but here's the other scary part. After they fly to the high parts, then what the eagle parent does is he inverts. He flies upside down, and that egret falls again. And that begins and repeats the whole tumbling process over and over and over again until something starts to take root in that egret's life. They start figuring out how to fly. They're able to balance, and they're able to flap in ways that are able to bring about lift and soaring. We can learn much from the eagle, and there are great parallels to our spiritual walks with God. There may be times when your comfortable surroundings become uncomfortable. You go through great difficulty. You may even be in danger of losing your life. What should you do? Well, if we are to soar with the eagles, we've learned what to do in our passage this evening. We must know some things. We must know who our God is. And then secondly, we must do something. We must wait for him. Simple things. These are simple things. Know your God and wait on him. Now, notice I didn't say easy things, but I did say simple things. Are you tempted to say like the Israelites in Isaiah's day that God doesn't see me or know my plight? Well, God does know, and God is active in every part of it. We must wait on him. How? Well, choose him. Be active in knowing and pursuing your God above everything else. Know him and wait and see the salvation of our God. Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage like this. And Lord, we can place ourselves in many of these different questions and and difficulties and circumstances. But Lord, I'm so thankful that you have included this picture of soaring like an eagle in your word. I pray for uh, us now as your children 
Would you help us to know you? And then, Lord, would you help us to wait for you? Lord, we would, we would admit that waiting is hard. But, Lord, we know that you are never late and you give strength as we wait for you. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to wait patiently? Would you help us to wait actively? Would you help us to wait intentionally? And then sit back and watch as you work. Lord, would you help us to trust? Maybe there's one here who's tempted to try to fix things on their own strength. Lord, would you help them to understand there's no way that they will ever find fulfillment, never find victory if they seek to do it on their own, but it is when we rely on you and trust in you and wait in you that then we see that victory. Lord, maybe there's one here or one watching that has never actually trusted Christ for their salvation. They're living their life for themselves. And Lord, would you show them how futile that is? And would you draw them to yourself and draw them to, uh, to our Savior who has done wondrous things? And then, Lord, we can sit back and we can watch and we can observe how you work. Would you help us now? As we sing now the next few moments, would you help it to be a time of dedication to you? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.